Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1, we're going to be verses 9 through 20. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna, to Pergamum and to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. In the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. His voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. The seven lampstands are the seven churches. So this is the introduction to seven letters sent by Jesus to seven distinct churches. These letters are coming at the end of John's life. John has kind of served as a, in some sort of pastoral role to these churches. The intricacies of how church polity worked in Asia at this time are kind of beyond us. These churches would all be located in what we would now consider to be Turkey. And John is on the island of Patmos. He's on the island of Patmos because he was exiled for preaching the gospel of Christ. John, tradition tells us, is the only one of Jesus' 12 disciples who does not die as a martyr. He is the only one who dies a natural death. Now, before you get too excited for John, tradition also tells us that John just happened to be survived being boiled alive. So, John did not have an easy road to being the only one of the disciples that did not die a martyr's death, but it does seem that he died very late in the first century, perhaps even into the second century. So around 100 AD, John dies. The common dating of this book, there's two common dates. One puts it just before 70 AD. That's when Jerusalem is sacked by Titus. The rest, and I think the more reliable ones, although it's not a, a make-or-break issue, the rest date it in around, around 90 A.D., so shortly before John's death. And John is uh, writing these letters on behalf of Jesus. We live in an era where letters are not quite as common as maybe they once were because we live in an era of text messages and emails, which tend to be a little bit less, uh, a little bit, less sophisticated, a little bit less thought out. I know I spend less time thinking about a 10-word text message than a, a one-page handwritten letter. But some of you probably bridged the gap between two worlds and may still be big letter writers. Letters are, are significant forms of communication. They're significant to historians. They, they, they tell us what has happened because they're a lasting record. I think that's also why we view them as significant. Because when I say something in person, 
I say it and it's gone. It lives on only in memory. And our memories often uh, lack a little bit of reliability. And so a, a spoken word just kind of is lost into the nowhere. Whereas the written word, so long as you don't lose it, is preserved indefinitely. It's there. You can see it. It's physical. It's memorable. So letters are significant for that purpose. Letters are also significant because the time it takes to write them. Because you're, you're handwriting them, but not only that, uh, you have to send the letter. When I'm talking or when I'm text messaging, basically I'm talking about what's happening in the next five minutes. That's my focus when I'm having a conversation. What's happening in the here and now? When I send a text message, I'm thinking about what's happening in the here and now. If you were to mail a letter, the very nature of sending the letter means that what you are saying, you expect to have significance three or four days from now because it's going to take a while for the letter to get there. It's that, that long process to get there. I'm sure many of us have heard stories of, of fathers and mothers who, who die of cancer or some other disease that they know their death is coming. And as they're dying, they, they fill a shoebox full of letters to their children for all the life events that they're going to miss. Uh, when your mom starts dating again, and a letter from dad giving wisdom to their children. Maybe when you get your first job, a letter trying to impart the values of a good work ethic. When, you're, when you get married, maybe some advice on how to love a spouse well. Uh, when you have a child, and th these letters that, that this father writes... If you receive those from your father, they become incredibly meaningful because it's someone's thought written down for you. It shows a great deal of affection. It shows concern. It shows permanence. It gives wisdom. It demonstrates love. And here, in the first three chapters of Revelation, Jesus is doing this to his churches. Jesus is sending a letter to the seven churches, or rather sending seven letters to the seven churches. And each of these churches have specific threats, specific problems that they're dealing with. And Jesus, in love and care for them like a shepherd who loves his sheep, is going to reach out. He's going to say, this is what you need to know. There is danger coming, and I want you to be prepared for it. You are making a mistake, and I want to fix that mistake before the consequences are too great for you. And in love, Jesus is going to reach out and warn these churches about the dangers and the problems and the failures that they have so that they can be churches to the glory of God. And this text here gives us the introduction. It kind of grounds these letters in their source. It matters to me where a letter comes from. It matters to me who someone is that's telling me information. Now, uh, occasionally, when we have a problem with our car, uh, we, we recently had a bubble on our, our van's tire. So I had to go get the tire changed. I guess we will blame it on Sheboygan potholes or something. Uh, and so we had this bubble on the tire, and, and we had to go get it changed. And I told Ainsley, because we were driving together at the time, I said, Ainsley, we've got to go to, to the store and we've got to have them look at our tires. So what's wrong with it? I said, well, I'm not sure there's a little bubble on it. And she proceeded to give me a significant amount of advice on how best to fix my tire on my van. Now, needless to say, Ainsley's advice on car repairs was not incredibly valuable to me. 
I really didn't take heed to what she was saying. However, when I got to Firestone and I talked to the Firestone guy and he told me what needed to be done with my tire, I cared because he had a level of authority. His advice had a came from a source that was more authoritative than a four-year-old girl. And so I was inclined to listen. And so before seeing the seven letters that Jesus is writing and this passage, we're going to get a vision of the one who is writing the letters. And that ought to increase in our minds the authority of these seven letters. If we understand where they're coming from, we ought to be more motivated to submit to the instructions that Jesus gives to his church in the following passage. So we're going to walk through this text. This is not a text that is filled with application. It's a text that's building a bridge to the point where we're going to be applying and some very practical texts in the next seven weeks. Now I hope still there is much to apply to our lives and apply to our church here, but we're really setting a backdrop, a foundation for what we're going to be doing in the coming texts. Start in verse number nine. I, John your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So this is the physical medium through which this letter is coming. The human medium through which these letters are coming is John. This is John the apostle, John the disciple, the same John that wrote the gospel of John that we've been studying recently. Here at the end of his life, around uh, 100 years old, almost most likely, he is on the island of Patmos. He, he's on the island in exile. He explains why he's in exile there. Why is John on Patmos? Is it because it's a great vacation destination? No, it's a penal colony. So why is he there? On account of, because of, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. John makes it clear. Here I am, end of my life. I'm on this God-forsaken island in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. It's a rocky outcropping. It's a small island. I'm with a bunch of criminals. Why am I here? On account of the word of God and the testimony of Christ. So John is establishing who he is. But look at how he starts. And I, I love how he starts. I, John, your brother and partner. So the apostle John also loves these churches that he's writing to on behalf of Jesus. And as he's writing to them, and he, he talks about their relationship, he talks about his relationship with the church, is he has two components. He's their brother. Well, what's the significance of John being their brother? They are both, he and the church, adopted in Christ. Beloved sons of God together because of what Christ has done. So he is their brother but he's also something else. He is their partner. They are working together. They're in fellowship. They are partners with one another. But what are they partners in doing? Partners in tribulation. And I would much prefer a business partner to a tribulation partner. But John and the church at Revelation, they are partners in tribulation. They both have suffered. Well, John's already, well, he's about to explain to us why he suffered because the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So John has in common with the churches that they are partners in tribulation. However, they're also partners in the kingdom. So there is a present tense. This is where we are now. We are suffering, but there's also a future tense. There's a kingdom coming and we are partners in that. So now we're suffering. 
Soon we will be reigning with Christ in a kingdom. Both of these things are simultaneously partnerships that John has with the various churches that he's addressing. So they are partners both in tribulation and in a kingdom. And how are they going to get from tribulation to a kingdom? The third way they're partners, they are partners in patient endurance. And then one last little phrase here that even intensifies it more. They are partners in tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Christ. So their partnership together is a partnership that is ultimately grounded in Christ. They are partners together in tribulation. They are partners together in the kingdom. They are partners together in patient endurance. So John and the churches both are in this situation, but the hope in that situation is they are in that situation together in Christ. So their unity is also a unity with Jesus. They suffer together. They're suffering the persecution from the emperor. They're suffering the false teachers that they're dealing with. They're suffering persecution from their loved ones. They're suffering this tribulation while anticipating a kingdom and walking the path between the two in patient endurance. This is consistent with other texts in the New Testament. Colossians 1.24 says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. So there we have Paul partnering in sufferings with the church at Colossae. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of the body, that is the church. So Paul is a partner in suffering with the church at Colossae, and he is doing that as one who follows Christ, filling up what is lacking in the suffering of Christ. That Jesus has suffered, and now more suffering comes to the church. And this is not unexpected, and it is not bad. It is not surprising. This is life in the church. We suffer together. Now, these seven churches are going to be responding to their situation of suffering and tribulation, anticipating a kingdom in different ways. Some of them are suffering very well. Some of them are suffering very poorly. As we go through, we're going to see Jesus responding to the different responses of these seven churches. But John is being called here. This is the beginning. So, John, partner tribulation, kingdom, and patient endurance that are in Christ Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And then what happens? Verse number 10, he was in the spirit on the Lord's day. The Lord's day there, uh, there's a little bit of a debate about what Lord's day is referring to. One option that it's talking about the end times day of the Lord. So basically the vision that he's about to get of the end times saying when he was on the Lord's day that it's the vision itself is of the Lord's day. That's probably not the best explanation. Some have taken that. There's two other more probable explanations. The one option is that this is Easter. Okay? So it's Easter Sunday, the Lord's day, the day that commemorates Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And John is in the spirit on Easter. Or the option that I would actually suggest is most likely, it simply means it was Sunday. It's Sunday, which had been referred to at other points in the New Testament as the Lord's Day. This is one of the early times. And within 50 years of when John writes this, the Lord's Day is just standard terminology for Sunday. So uh, I think most likely it's Sunday. So John is likely on Patmos worshiping by himself, taken away from his churches, exiled from his people. Nonetheless, he turns to worship the Lord. And there he is worshiping the Lord when a prophetic vision comes upon him. 
This prophetic vision is described as being in the spirit. This is similar to visions that are given to Ezekiel in the Old Testament, to Peter, when uh, Jesus comes to him with a vision saying that the the various types of food are now rendered clean. Uh, It's a consistent phraseology. John there on Patmos is in the spirit. A couple thoughts about being in the spirit here. Is this something that we should all be pursuing, being in the spirit in the sense where John is? Should we be pursuing visions like this? First of all, John's an apostle. He's in a unique position. He is also at a crisis in salvation history. The apostles are about to pass off the scene. This is Jesus' kind of last chance to minister through the apostles to the church. So it's not surprising that he would have a phenomenal vision like he has. Also, at the end of this revelation that he's going to receive, being in the Spirit, he's going to mark it as being complete. Chapter 22, 16 through 19. Towards the end of the book, it says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I'm the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The Spirit and the bride say, Come. Let the one who's here say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. If anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. So John talking about being in the spirit, having these visions, I don't think that gives us an expectation that this is just the ordinary Christian life. In fact, John warns us, or Jesus through John warns us that this is a conclusion of the book of Revelation at the end. So this is not something we ought to seek or expect. In fact, as we go through the New Testament, as the apostles minister to the church, it is the exception rather than the rule when they're talking about big things like this. Much more common is the church is grounded on the history of what Jesus has accomplished, not the future of what Jesus will accomplish. Much more often, the apostles are focused on teaching the church to look to the tangible revelation of Christ that we have in his humanity, in his indwelling, in his incarnation. So even here, John is encouraging the church by sharing his vision, but he is not inviting them to participate in the vision. This is not the ordinary Christian life that John experiences here. Nonetheless, he's there, he's in the spirit, he's worshiping on the Lord's day. And the second half of verse 10 tells us what happens next. I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book, send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. So there he is worshiping, he's in the spirit. He hears a voice behind him. That voice sounds like a loud trumpet, a loud trumpet. What's being communicated by calling it like a loud trumpet? Well, for one thing, a trumpet, is there's an authority to it. There's a boldness to it. And when it's ascribing a voice as being like a loud trumpet, this voice behind him clearly is authoritative. Not only that, it's a call to submission. What would a trumpet be used for at this time particularly? To order people. Kind of like the sound of a bugle in battle where it's a loud, piercing way to give commands across distance. There's no walkie-talkies in battle. 
There's no pull out your phone and call the guy. So they use something like a trumpet to give a command across the great distance. And so Jesus here comes in and he's speaking with a voice like a trumpet. It's commanding and it's authoritative. And this voice calls John to do something simple. Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. So Jesus has something to say to John and he expects John to then write what he has said in a book and send it to the seven churches. And he goes and he lists these seven churches. Uh, one little bit of warning here about the seven churches. Maybe some of you have heard the seven churches used to talk about the eras of church history. Okay? So some people will take them and they'll say, we live in the age of Laodicea. Okay? That's, I think that's a little less common today than it used to be. There's really no textual basis for saying that these seven churches represent the seven eras of church history. That's kind of something that some people have inputted onto the text. I know it was in some of my high school textbooks um, and even some of my college textbooks. So maybe it's just me that's heard it. But if you have heard such teaching, I don't know that it's necessarily like some pernicious false doctrine that's going to tear down the gospel. There's just not a lot of textual basis and it ends up being a lot more speculation than anything substantive. Just a little bit of a warning there. We have seven churches. They're not listed in any particular order that would incline us to say that they're eras in time. But they're seven distinct bodies spread throughout Asia that are all going to have their own distinct problems. Yet, in each of the letters, in each of these seven letters, one of the last lines in each letter is, Let he who has an ear hear what the Lord says to the seven churches. So each of these letters are written to distinct churches, but with a broader audience intended. So he writes a letter to the church at Thyatira, but then at the end of that letter says, if you've got ears, you should listen to this letter too. So there are letters written to specific situations with general applications. And so Christ orders John to record these letters. How do we know it's Christ? Well, because our next text is going to reveal him. And this is where I think we get into the real meat of this text. These letters that John is writing have a powerful source. Verse number 12, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. Okay, we're going to find out later. The seven golden lampstands are symbols for the churches. And in the midst of the seven of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. And we'll find out later, those are the angels of the seven churches, which we'll talk about in a second. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. So who's sending this letter? This man described here, one like a son of man. That term son of man is incredibly significant throughout the Bible. I think our natural understanding of son of man is think, oh, that's just a title that's used to refer to Jesus' humanity. Okay? Jesus was a son of man. He was born of a man. He was human. And that's certainly an element of that. But that is a fraction of the weightiness of this term. This title, Son of Man, is the most common title Jesus uses to describe himself in the Gospels. But it's also a reference to two Old Testament prophetic texts, one of which we've already read this morning. Uh, another one is just three chapters after that, found in Daniel. It's not merely an emphasis on his humanity, but a description of his 
particular power, his particular role. So Daniel 7, 13 through 14 is the first place he's introduced in Daniel. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. All right, exact same language. And he came to the ancient of days, was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Even as Brad was reading this text this morning, my mind was taken to uh, the book of 2 Samuel chapter 7, where David is promised an eternal kingdom. And the, the language is so similar between Daniel 7 and 2 Samuel chapter 7. It's, it's showing that the one who's going to fulfill the Davidic covenant, the one who's going to fulfill the covenant with Abraham, and even the one who's going to fulfill the covenant with Adam and Eve, that the seed would come and crush Satan's head, this one who is coming certainly is going to be a man, certainly is going to be an offspring of David, but he's also something else as well. The Son of Man is the Messiah. Son of Man is also the Son of God. It goes on in Daniel chapter 10. We talk about the Son of Man again. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. All right, so both of those texts are describing the same person as we're having described in Revelation chapter 1. So let's kind of combine all these descriptions to reach some conclusions about this Son of Man. First of all, the Son of Man has a priestly role. When it talks about his clothing, it's describing the clothing of an Old Testament priest, the sash around his chest, things like that. These are describing the clothing of a priest. And what role does he play? He is a mediator between the Ancient of Days and mankind. So the Ancient of Days is the one who ultimately rules over everything, but the Ancient of Days establishes a throne for the Son of Man to rule over all humans from. And so... He is a mediator. What does he do? He stands in the midst of the lampstands. Uh, and there's this idea, the priest, one of the tasks of the priest, and these lampstands bear a lot of similarity to the lampstands in the tabernacle and the lampstands in the temple. The priest, part of their responsibility was the maintenance of the lamps in the temple. And so Jesus here is standing in the midst of the lampstands, the seven churches, part of the responsibility of one wearing priestly garments, standing in the midst of all these churches, these lampstands, is going to be the maintenance of the lampstands. And so this Son of Man standing there has a priestly role. The Son of Man is also pure. When it talks about his feet, they're like polished and refined bronze. That communicates a whole lot of things to us. The refinement refers to the purity. There is no imperfections in a refined bronze, of refined shining feet. Yet feet are typically used in the Bible in symbolism for action. He is one who is active. He is moving. He is active, yet pure. So, the Son of Man is a pure, he's active. The Son of Man is also a judge. He's about to judge the seven churches. He's about to weigh them. He's about to consider them. 
But he then also has authority. In Daniel chapter 7, the authority of the Ancient of Days is transferred to the Son of Man. And the Son of Man has authority not just over the churches, but over all nations. He is sovereign. He holds seven stars in his hand. If you can hold stars in your hand, that's quite an accomplishment. He is holding seven stars. He has authority. He holds them in his hand. He has a voice like many waters. Think as John, as he writes this, and Daniel 10, they describe it as the voice of a multitude, so this loud, echoing voice. In Revelation, you can imagine why would John use the metaphor, voice like waters? Well, where is he? He's on an island in the middle of the ocean. He's hearing the crashing of the sea against the rocks on this island. And when he hears the voice of the Son of Man in all its power, it reminds him of the crashing sea, the power of the sea. This vision sets forth a man, but not a mere man, a man of great power, of great authority. Not only that, the Son of Man has a two-edged sword in his mouth. He is not only judge, he is executioner. He is able to enforce the decisions that he makes. In the 1820s, the state of Georgia was making several laws that had to do with uh, the Cherokee Indian tribe. And these laws were restricting them, were persecuting the Cherokee Indian tribe, trying to restrict their access to trade and things like that. Well, at this time, the Indians actually tried to sue the U.S. government. They tried to sue the U.S. government for a relief from some of the problems that they had. And the court just tossed out their lawsuit and said, you don't have any standing to sue. We don't even have jurisdiction over you. There's nothing you can sue about. So... As a result, another man by the name of Marbury, who is a pastor from New England, came down and he started working with the Indians. And uh, shortly after, they imprisoned him because in his work with the Indians, it was causing some more rebellion against the laws that they thought were unjust against them. So you end up having this lawsuit, the state of Georgia against Marbury, because they couldn't really keep him in prison for breaking laws that they said that they couldn't enforce anyway because it was happening on the Indian Reservation. So as a result, it's all complicated. Supreme Court's never simple, right? And so that all this is happening. And at the time, there's a president named Andrew Jackson. Andrew Jackson, one of his goals to alleviate the Indian problem in Georgia is he wants to forcibly relocate all the Indians from Georgia, the entire Cherokee tribe, he wants to relocate them out to Oklahoma, an event that's often referred to as the Trail of Tears. Well, in all the convoluted mix-up of all these lawsuits and stuff going on, Georgia versus Marbury had a bearing on whether Jackson would be allowed to forcibly relocate the Cherokee Indians to Oklahoma. And when it finally goes to the Supreme Court, they discuss it, and John Marshall, the Chief Justice, gives his decision. And basically, the decision that John Marshall makes means Andrew Jackson has no right as president to take an entire tribe of people and relocate them from Georgia to Oklahoma. Well, Andrew Jackson gets this result, and his response, we have a quote from him, John Marshall has made his decision, now let him enforce it. And then he went and did exactly what the Supreme Court told him not to do. As he said, great. Supreme Court says I'm not supposed to relocate a whole tribe of people across the country. We know from history it did happen, called the Trail of Tears, because the Supreme Court did not have the power to enforce the decision that Andrew Jackson didn't like. Jesus, as judge, 
is not like John Marshall. Jesus, as judge, is also able to carry out the sentence that he levies. And when Jesus is described not only as a judge, when he's acting as judge over the churches, he's acting as judge with a sword, a two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. The similar description of him is given to us later in the book of Revelation when it talks about him returning in judgment on the world. Jesus, as judge, is also able to execute the sentence that he decides. So the vision given to John before the letters are given to the churches is Jesus, the Son of Man, someone absolutely worthy of glory and worship, someone who must be obeyed. So how does John respond? Verse number 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet, though dead. John, encountering Jesus in all his glory, falls on his face. He simply cannot stand in the presence of the Son of Man. He falls on his face. It's interesting, in Daniel chapter 10, in that vision, the same thing happens to Daniel. He falls on his face. He cannot stand. He cannot speak to the Son of Man because the greatness of his glory and authority and power. He worships. He is humbled by this vision of Jesus. Not just Jesus meek and petting a sheep. Jesus, a warrior. Jesus, a king. Jesus, with a sword in his mouth, with stars in his hand. Yet what is Jesus' response? One of unquestionable power and authority. What does he do when he deals with someone like John, someone who is so fallible, someone who is so fallen, someone who is so broken that he cannot even stand in the presence of the Son of Man? This is what happens. When I saw him, I fell at his feet, though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not. So John encounters Jesus in all his majesty. What more wonderful picture of what happens in the gospel. The fearsome wrath of God is shed on Jesus. He bears the wrath of God for sins, yet also at the same time he is loving. In him is salvation. So this mighty fearsome Lord comes to John, puts his hand on him and says, don't be afraid. Fear not. And why shouldn't he fear? I am the first and the last and the living one. As we talked about in Sunday school this morning, two attributes of God. He's eternal. He is alive. He is never not alive. Yet, what's the next description? I am die. So we have God in all his glory and might and power, but then there's this contrast. The Son of Man is the living one, but he is the one who died. And behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. These verses in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, when Paul defines the gospel, how does he define it? He died, he was buried, he rose again. That's who Jesus is. Then here in Revelation, as he's giving these letters to the churches, what does he say to John? I am the living one. I died. But he's still the living one. Behold, I am alive forevermore. He is resurrected. And what is the result of that? He has the keys of death in Hades. And now, if you find out that someone has absolute power over life and death, that's what this expression is saying. Jesus has absolute power over life and death. How many of you, if you heard a story on the
news about a king and a country somewhere else in the world, and that king is described as one who has absolute power over life and death. How many of you think, I want to move to that country? None of us. When it is a human who bears absolute authority over life and death, it is a terrible, terrible thing. Yet when it is the Son of God, the living one, who died and rose again, when he is the one who holds absolute authority over life and death, the words, the instructions that accompany that authority are fear not. The gospel enables us to have a mighty warrior savior. The two contrasting ideas that we have of Jesus as justly and righteously and wrathfully coming at the end time and destroying his enemies are not incompatible with the loving Jesus who lays down his life for his sheep. Both of those exist together. And here, as John is being given the basis for his letters to the churches, it is the person of Jesus Christ that makes these letters worth listening to. The crushing vision of the Son of Man sends John to the floor, yet he can be comforted by that same Son of Man. It is appropriate for us to fear God. But the fear of God is also accompanied by trust in the goodness of God. The gospel changes how we fear God. A proper understanding of the gospel does not make Jesus or God less powerful. A proper understanding of God does not make sin less heinous. A proper understanding of the gospel does not make our fallenness any better. What it does is it shows that there is a good God who makes a path through that. There is a good God who redeems us. And so these letters are written by Jesus to the churches. Go back to thinking about a young man whose father dies and how he would treasure the letters that he gets. Why would he treasure those letters? Because he loves his father, because he trusts his father, because his father has wisdom, because his father loves him, he treasures those letters. Now, we are about to look at seven letters from this person. Seven letters from the Son of Man with glowing feet of refined bronze, with a two-edged sword in his mouth, with long flowing white hair, with a voice like the sea or a voice like a trumpet. This son of man who holds the stars in his hands. You think these letters are worth reading? You think these letters are worth paying attention to? As a church, do you think the son of man who sends letters to his churches is someone who deserves our loyalty, our faithfulness in his church? Therefore, he says, write the things that you have seen. Those that are, those that are to take place after this, and he gives some explanation. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw on my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. The seven lampstands are the seven churches. So Jesus is there maintaining his churches, writing these letters to his churches to protect them. The seven stars, that raises some questions, right? The angels of the seven churches. There's a couple options that we can take on this. Some would say angel means that each church has an angel. Okay, so like your church has a guardian angel and Jesus is writing a letter to the guardian angel of the church. I wouldn't say that's the most likely explanation. There's not a lot of corroborating evidence throughout the rest of the Bible. Angel, though, as a term, it, some would say maybe it's the spirit of the churches so that like each church has this kind of, kind of 
non-personal spirit of that church. And it's possible, a little more possible. More likely would be a different translation of the word angel, which could also be translated messenger. That's the one that I, I lean towards. So the messengers of the seven churches, referring to the seven people who are going to come to Patmos and get the letters and bring them back. Okay? Not a very supernatural or exciting explanation, but I think it's a reasonable explanation that the, the seven stars is that Jesus maybe even already has, is bringing seven messengers to get this letter, these letters to send back to the churches. But as we look at these seven letters... We come back to this same question. Are Revelation chapters 2 and 3 worth listening for us today? Well, let's start by looking not at the content. Okay? Content's good. Content's important. We'll get to the content. But it's not worth listening because we agree with the content. These letters are worth listening to because they are sent by the Son of Man. The one who who is sent by the Ancient of Days, the one who rightly rules over all creation, the one who has power and authority, the one who is our intercessor, the one who is living, who died, who rose again and lives forevermore, the one who holds the keys to death and hell in his hand. That's why the next two chapters are worth studying. That's why these seven letters to churches 2,000 years ago are worth learning about. Because we do have ears to hear. So we ought to take seriously the instruction that we are given at the end of these letters. Let he who has an ear to hear, listen. Let us hear what God has said. Looking forward to getting into these seven letters over the course of the next couple months. John was reminded of Jesus by a vision. Like I said, I don't think that's ordinary. That's not normal. That's not the practice that we should expect for life in the church, that we're going to have visions of Christ. Knowing that that's not going to happen, Christ in love on his last night with the disciples instituted the Lord's Supper, which we will observe today. And so as we move into this series, as we move into looking at what Christ says to these seven churches, let us move into it remembering who Christ is. And today, as we partake of bread, as we partake of the cup, these are active memories. These are things that come to us, that tell us exactly what Jesus revealed about himself in that glorious vision given to John. He suffered, he died, he rose again. And today we remember that by partaking of his body and blood in the communion.